0: This is Hardwood Handicappers, VEASAN's premier NBA betting podcast. Here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. What's up, everybody? Welcome in. Hardwood Handicappers is back for the NBA season. We are just a couple of weeks away from tip-off for the 2022-2023 season. Cannot wait. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And with that, Hardwood Handicappers is back in your life with a little bit of a new format. We're going to have episodes twice a week pretty early on. Kelly Bidland, those of you who know him, of course, producer extraordinaire and handicapper over here at v with me. He's going to join us regularly throughout these podcasts as well as we get into the NBA season and as the NBA season evolves, as will the pod, and we'll get to a little bit more of some of the different evolutions and um, iterations of what Harwood Handicappers is going to be as it progresses. But we are back, and today we start off our previews with the Eastern Conference, and There is a lot to get to in the Eastern Conference, and we have a lot, right? We have playoff odds. We have win totals. uh, We have many things to kind of wrap into a brief uh, preview of what this conference is going to be like, but we're going to begin at the top, because I think at the top of the Eastern Conference are a fascinating trio of teams that have a lot going for them as we enter the regular season, and I think the most intriguing team at the top, and which is where I wanted to begin, is the Philadelphia 76ers, a team that in the offseason— I came away fascinated by because of the offseason that they had and even more so as you dive into what exactly the Philadelphia 76ers did. And I think it's kind of funny to start with the Philadelphia 76ers in an offseason which everybody talked about the Boston Celtics after they just got done with that NBA Finals run and added the pieces that they did or the Milwaukee Bucks who have arguably the best player on the planet in Giannis Antetokounmpo and did add, I thought, at least on the fringes, a very good piece in Joe Ingles. But I wanted to start with Philadelphia because I do think that if there is a peak to be had, if everything hits the way that these teams expect them to do, or if the perfect – I guess you call it the perfect season. Not perfect as in terms of record, but at least in terms of all the pieces that you add hit at all the right cylinders, I think the Philadelphia 76ers – have one of the highest ceilings in the Eastern Conference if all of those things come perfectly together. So let's roll through first what this offseason looked like for Philadelphia, and we'll get into win total and why I think these pieces really work together. But we'll start with the additions. P.J. Tucker is obviously the biggest name that the Philadelphia 76ers add, of course. Tucker is a fantastic power forward. We know how good he is at shooting corner threes, an awesome defender for a team that needed on-ball defenders. Wonderful addition for the Philadelphia 76ers. DeAnthony Melton, Daniel House, Montrezero all come over in the offseason as well. I think Melton, of those three, the most important aspect, because backup guard was one of the biggest holes on this roster for the Philadelphia 76ers, and they had a 10-point-per-game scorer who was a really, really good addition at times when he was out there on the floor for the Memphis Grizzlies a season ago. But where you start here with Philly overall, outside of the additions, is how good the top of this roster is. For those who don't remember, when Joel Embiid and – James Harden were on the floor together last year. This is one of the most efficient offenses in the NBA and one of the most, like I would say, dominant offenses in the NBA. With those two on the floor together last year in the regular season, the offense averaged 124.1 points per 100 possessions at a plus 15.8 net rating. It was devastating what it was able to do to the opposition, and those two are going to be a little bit more comfortable together. They have a full offseason together. And what this starting lineup could potentially be with those two on the floor, With P.J. Tucker spacing the floor from the corners, when you have a guy like Tyrese Maxey who came along very strongly in his second year, they're going to be one of the deadlier offensive teams in the NBA, both in the regular season and in the postseason. And as you'll kind of understand as we go through some of these podcasts and we preview these from a preseason standpoint, there is a difference between handicapping regular season teams and postseason teams, but I do think Philly is one of those rare breeds where they check the boxes for both a dominant regular season team and a championship contender, and those are few and far between, as you'll hear throughout these preview episodes. But when you put everything together for the Philadelphia 76ers, when you talk about one of the better starting lineups in the NBA, didn't even mention Tobias Harris and what he's able to do as a jump shooter and, of course, just score overall somebody who can get his own bucket when you have P.J. Tucker and his ability to defend and space the floor, all of these guys come together, I think, to project as one of the best regular season teams in the NBA. And if you look around at the market for the Philadelphia 76ers, you see a team whose win total is at about 50.5. It's the best price for those of you who want to bet them over. Some markets have them as high as 51.5. But over at like DraftKings, for example, when you're talking about a 50.5 with a modest minus 120 price for Philadelphia, that is, I think a tremendous win total to invest in playing over. And when you search the market as well, because for me, when it comes to the Philadelphia 76ers, you really want to get in that buy price of about 15 to one or so. And that is available. You can get them at FanDuel at about 16 to one is the best price I saw that was over at FanDuel. Points bet has them at 15 to one as well. DraftKings is in that range too. But 15 to one was my buy price. And buy prices are always what you want to set with a lot of these futures. This Philly team is legitimate. This is a team that is going to be very good on the offensive end of the floor and is going to be among the best in the Eastern Conference. And that isn't to say when you get into some of these previews, he tends to be overly positive. There's going to be flaws for Philly defensively. When you look at their backup center position, for example, there is no true big. Montrezl is a little undersized, and he's not a rim protector. He's very good on offense, but he's not a good defender. There are going to be issues with Philly, but there is no perfect team here. But when you put all of these things together for the 76ers, I can't help but start an Eastern Conference preview with one of the teams that I am most intrigued about and most excited about because I do think the market, even with 50.5 as a win total, I just don't think that there's really enough respect for a Philadelphia 76ers team that has a lot of potential here when it comes to the grand scheme of things in the NBA. And that's where I wanted to start, at the top. Now, I mentioned the trio of teams when it comes to the Eastern Conference because it is Philly, it is Milwaukee, and it is Boston. But when you look at the two teams outside of Philly that we're talking about here, when it comes to Boston and when it comes to Milwaukee, There are certain things that are going to hold them back to a certain extent at the start of the regular season where investing in them to go over their win totals, which are relatively high, or investing in them at the beginning portion of the year to uh, win a championship when you can probably get some better prices as the year goes along because there are some potential slow starts on the horizon for both of these teams. There's really no path there, I think, to invest in them positively at the beginning of the year because there's going to be better opportunities to be had. So let's start with Boston, for example. Uh, Because Boston is a fascinating team in their own right, right? They're coming off of an Eastern Conference Championship. They were, if you look at from the uh, portion of the year where they were 18-21 to and onward, they were one of the best teams in the NBA uh, when it came to uh, net rating, defensive rating at the end of last year, and they project to be just that similar team. When you have a lineup of Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, and Robert Williams, that one being one of the most dominant statistical lineups in the NBA a season ago, that is going to be something that is going to project to be a very good team. However, Robert Williams is going to be unhealthy as the year begins. He is going to miss about eight to 12 weeks when he uh, recovers, as he recovers from this knee procedure. So that is one of the key pieces for the Boston Celtics who's not going to be available at the beginning of the year. For those who don't remember, Robert Williams was the key for the Boston Celtics to actually really turn things on after they got out to that really slow start, Al Horford, excuse me, Al Horford, it, didn't, it involves Al Horford. Um, but Ime Udoka took Robert Williams and shifted his defensive assignments with Al Horford. Instead of putting him in pick and roll actions, he put Robert Williams off the ball. Al Horford took more of those pick and roll actions from a defensive standpoint, and it changed their defense around. Robert Williams is a rover. He went around. He blocked shots. He helped on uh, at the rim. It was incredible what he was able to do for them defensively. He's out for eight to 12 weeks as you move into the regular season that hurts a team right in terms of its depth obviously and especially when you look at the backup center position to the point where the Celtics had to go and get Blake Griffin in the offseason to kind of offset some of those issues they have at center behind Al Horford those are going to be the kind of things that when you're talking about win totals of 53 and a half which is the highest on the market for the Boston Celtics those little things at the margins make the difference So when I come into a pod and we're talking about, hey, the Boston Celtics under, for example, on 53 and a half, a recommended win total for the Celtics. A lot of people take that as, oh, you're fading Boston. You don't think they're any good. But that's not really the case. What the case is, is that when you're talking about little things like that, that make the difference between one or two wins, you want to invest more in under 53 and a half, because this is already a very highly valued team by the market coming into the year. And I don't think that these absences are fairly equated into this number. For example, if Robert Williams is fully healthy by the time this season comes around, is this win total 54.5? Is it 55.5? No, it's probably still 53. And I just, this needs to be accounted for when it comes into these numbers. And so I think when you talk about 53.5 for a team that is a little overvalued by the betting market, an absent like Robert Williams isn't fairly accounted for in a number like this. So when you look at the Milwaukee Bucks, it's going to be the same issue. I think season long, because as we start to get more and more experts filling in our NBA guide, which, by the way, is going to be out soon, you're starting to see a lot of people from v pick the Milwaukee Bucks to make it to the NBA Finals. And I would not fault anybody to do so. They're not my selection. We'll get into that momentarily, at least as the Eastern Conference Finals representative. But when you talk about Milwaukee at the beginning of the season, again, winning games, their small forward position is going to be a small issue. You have Chris Middleton, who's still recovering from injury. It's unclear about what time table is going to look like and when he's going to come back. They signed Joe Ingles, who once you get to the postseason is going to be absolutely tremendous. But he, too, has an injury issue. Of course, remember, he tore his ACL last year, so we don't know how healthy he's going to be at the start of the year. And that means your small forward position is going to be a very big chunk of Pat Connaughton as the season gets started. And your starting lineup is probably going to have Grayson Allen and Pat Connaughton in it. And that's not really great from that standpoint. And I think that's a little bit of when you talk about, you know, again, investing in these teams that have really high win totals to have success. Those are the small differences for somebody like me to look at them more under the total. So for of the big trio, we'll call them at the top of the Eastern Conference. For Boston, I think it's very wise to look at them under their win total of 53 and a half, especially at that high of 53 and a half. And the same would be said for Milwaukee, who if you're talking about how high the win total is, highest on the market that I found for the Milwaukee Bucks was 52 and I think the Bucks do want to try to win games, but the absences at small forward might cause some things. And we saw last year too. Giannis didn't miss that much time, but Drew Holiday did. Those starters were kind of in and out of the lineup a little bit more. Maybe there's a little bit more of an emphasis on health for the Milwaukee Bucks as they get to the postseason as opposed to winning every single game possible, which was one of their deals as they went along throughout the Giannis and Bud era. But by the way, I mean, look, their starting lineup is going to be one of the best in the NBA. When you're talking about Middleton, Antetokounmpo, and Drew Holiday all on the floor together, they outscored opponents by 12.6 points per 100 possessions last year. They're going to be really good this year, and they're going to be among the best and a contender in the Eastern Conference. But again, a little bit wiser to kind of look at that team a little bit under the total. So we get the top three teams in the Eastern Conference. And after that, I do think there is some separation. And floating in the nexus all by themselves are the Brooklyn Nets, because you just have no idea what to do with a team like the Brooklyn Nets. And this is where my philosophy as a handicapper kind of gets tested a little bit. Because for those who have listened to the pod in the past or have taken in any of the work, you understand that I'm really big on analytics and numbers and how those project outwards, using those numbers over the course of large sample sizes to see how teams are going to do. But the Brooklyn Nets aren't really that team because there's so much off-court noise around this squad that changes everything in terms of what the Nets are potentially going to be. Because on paper, if I were to tell you that Kyrie Irving, Seth Curry, Royce O'Neill, Kevin Durant, and Ben Simmons... Are your projected starting lineup for the Brooklyn Nets, and that this team has all of the pieces, right? That lineup alone, for example, Ben Simmons at center, an absolutely tremendous piece. He can bring the ball up in transition. He can still defend extremely well. He is switchable. Royce O'Neal is a very good wing defender as well in his own right, albeit maybe a little undersized. And Irving, Curry, O'Neal, and Durant, all fantastic shooters. And guys like Royce O'Neal and Seth Curry work perfectly off ball. O'Neal's a 38% catch-and-shoot three-point shooter from a season ago. Curry, 47% on catch-and-shoot three-point attempts last year. They work perfectly next to two ball-dominant players like Irving and Durant. And their depth might actually be pretty good. Patty Mills and Joe Harris, career 389 and 43.9% three-point shooters. Both can fill very different roles. Mills played a little bit of point guard last year, and, and the minutes weren't great. They got outscored by 3.7 points per 100 possessions, and I project that to be kind of a weakness for the Brooklyn Nets. They're back a point guard situation. You don't really have a true number one. Cam Thomas, one-dimensional scorer, but he can handle facilitating, has been stressed as part of his offseason regiment, so maybe he hits, but he's a pretty good scorer to have off of the bench. And they actually bought low on T.J. Warren, who could actually work out very well for them. But I think when you look at this overall, it comes down to one thing for Brooklyn which is (laughs) how is this team going to stay together when you're talking about the offseason that they just had between Irving, Durant, and whether or not these two are going to demand to be traded or not want to play for this team by the time we get to December and January. Personally, I hate assuming those sort of things because I want solid data and numbers to point to as to why I think sort like those things. But it is hard to ignore that when it comes to the Brooklyn Nets, given how noisy it has been for them. So when you're talking about again investing in some of these win totals and what these prices are, on paper, the Brooklyn Nets have a roster that is deserving of a win total of 51 and a half, which is the highest one on the market. However, there is no way that you can re- like realistically invest in 51 and a half or over 51 and a half because of one, the way this team has handled itself in the offseason and off the court. And two, it's also very fair to point out that Kyrie Irving, in terms of availability, some of it being health, has not been around very often the last few seasons. And the same thing can be said for Kevin Durant, who has dealt with multiple soft tissue injuries. That includes his hamstring issue that helped him out for a vast majority of games last season. So when you put all these things together, if at the end of the year you were to tell me that the Brooklyn Nets are among the finalists in the Eastern Conference, it wouldn't be overwhelmingly surprising because they have a very good roster. But to say that I'm going to invest in them to win 52-plus games this season – I think is somewhat of a fool's errand. So very much in favor of looking at the Brooklyn that's underneath their win total. And that's where you kind of get into the rest of the Eastern conference. And there's three teams again, as we kind of bring these teams into groups and we're breaking this down into tiers when it comes to our Eastern conference preview, the, the three teams that I think we should talk about all together right now would be two teams, which made some really big offseason noise in Atlanta and Cleveland, who of course traded for DeJounte Murray and Donovan Mitchell, respectively. And the Miami Heat, who were the top overall seed in the Eastern Conference a season ago. But I kind of wanted to start with, of those three, I wanted to go with Atlanta. Because I think one of the more important things as a handicapper is to be willing to change your mind when presented with more information. Or studying a little bit more on some of these teams. And Atlanta was one of those. Because for me, when I came into this process, I did think that initially on the surface, DeJounte Murray and the Atlanta Hawks and Trey Young, that was going to be a fit that didn't really work out that well, right? The general thought that you hear from everybody is ah, oh, there's only one ball, it's two ball dominant guards. DeJounte Murray's not going to work off a ball because he can't really shoot. But when you actually take into consideration all of the pieces here for Atlanta, there is a lot to like about what the Atlanta Hawks really bring to the table here. First off, if you look at their projected starting lineup, you have Trey Young, obviously. You have DeJounte Murray, obviously. Then you get DeAndre Hunter, John Collins, and Clint Capella. If you have a healthy season from DeAndre Hunter and you get a full, you know, we'll call it full season, but you know, 65-plus games from Clint Capella and you get a full season from DeJounte Murray, those are three legitimately good defenders at their respective positions. Now, the of a sudden, a team in Atlanta which – Last season, finished 26th in non-garbage time defensive efficiency, giving up 114.8 points per 100 possessions, and had the 14th best net rating despite having the second best offensive rating in the league. Well, now all of a sudden, if you can raise the floor on your defense with three legitimate defenders in your starting lineup, well, this team becomes much more effective because this offense is going to be good. Trey Young quietly had one of the best seasons in the NBA a season ago. 28.4 points, 9.7 assists per game, and a career-high 1.21 Shots, uh, points per shot attempt. And alongside a guy like DeJounte Murray, that's really going to work out because I think a lot of people think, hey, playing off ball, you got to be able to shoot the ball extremely well. And Murray was a 36% catch and shoot three point shooter a year ago. But that's not necessarily the case. If you're DeJounte Murray, you can attack closeouts, you can cut, you can move off ball. There are so many other things that really work when Trey Young is on the ball. And when Trey Young's off the ball, well, Trey Young was a very good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter last year. Now, it's a minuscule sample size because he was on ball like 99.9% of the time, but Trey Young is still an effective off-ball shooter, and he should be able to move extremely well. Those two are going to work together. They are. And then when you take into account Hunter's ability to defend, Capella's ability to rebound and defend the rim, John Collins' ability to play off-ball and score and work really well with Trey Young, all of a sudden this starting lineup has a lot of potential, and the depth is pretty solid too. Bogdan Bogdanovich has been great since joining the team. He's improved the team's net rating when he's on the floor each season. That includes a career best plus 5.8 efficiency differential last season. He's also an awesome shooter, 47.3% on corner three-point attempts. Onyeko Okonwu has shown incredible improvement last season. Him on the floor, the Hawks were plus 4.9 per 100 possessions. And he's got a great knack for offensive rebounding, 12.3% in terms of an individual offensive rebounding rate, and a 3.2% block rate when he was on the floor. I think if you're complaining about something when it comes to this team, there is a drop-off after their top seven or eight. Aaron Holiday is on this roster as probably the backup point guard. His brother's on this roster as well, which I think he's a sneaky good pickup. But I think when you evaluate what Atlanta is, this team is much better on paper and built for the regular season than given credit for. And it tied into a couple of futures that I've played here in the Eastern Conference. And it ties into the Miami Heat. You know, One of the three teams that we're going to talk about here Miami got worse in the offseason, right? Miami lost PJ Tucker. They are projected to play with a very undersized lineup. They're already throwing out the fact that uh, one Caleb Martin is going to start a power forward for them, and Caleb Martin is six foot five, and uh, we'll call him Spelt for a six foot five guy. He's not a power forward. Jimmy Butler has already shot down the notion of playing power forward. So this team comes in. Think about their starting lineup. We're talking about six foot Kyle Lowry, six foot five Tyler Hero, six foot five Caleb Martin, six foot seven Jimmy Butler. And even Bam Adebayo as their center, somewhat undersized at six foot nine. It's a really small lineup for the Miami Heat. And that makes them switchable. It makes them a really solid defensive team. Butler and Adebayo and Lowry are all very good defenders. Tyler Hero is not, but they are so good with their switching and their communication and help defense that they'll be able to make up for Tyler Hero in this starting lineup. And Martin has proven to be very good in that regard as well. But I think when you talk about being undersized against some of these bigger teams that they're going to run into, uh, when you talk about the lack of depth in this bench for the Miami Heat, because that's one of the things that is really going to hurt them. Hero averaged 20.7 points per game in 56 games off the bench. And if he shifts to the starting lineup, like it is being kind of thrown out there in media circles in this preseason, now you're talking about a bench of primarily Gabe Vincent, Max Bruce, or Victor Oladipo. And while somebody could point to Victor Oladipo and say, you know what? Oladipo is probably that guy. He's going to be the bench scorer. Well, guess what? When he got to the postseason, because remember, he only played eight games in the regular season, his efficiency dropped off the side of a cliff. We're talking about postseason averages of 10.6 points per game and 0.973 points per shot attempt. That's horrific, by the way. If we're talking about efficiency and points per shot attempt. So how's he going to look over the course of a regular season? So when you put this all together, and that's why I wanted to tie in Atlanta because they are division rivals. One of the win total bets I've made is Miami under 49 and a half. I think when you account for the improvement of teams that we've already talked about, like the Philadelphia 76ers, as the season progresses, Milwaukee and Boston, and still, those are two like rated opponents are going to be very hard to play against when they meet them throughout the course of the regular season. The fact that one of their division rivals has taken a legitimate step forward in terms of their improvement. I think that this play is two ways for futures here. One, betting under Miami's win total of 49 and a half and correlating that to Atlanta winning this division which the best price you can find out there about plus 170. Those two things obviously go hand in hand somewhat. I think that that is the way that I wanted to play this South, the Southeast division, because I do think that those things, when you project that, when you look at both of these teams has a very, is much more probable that it happens than what the current market says, which has Miami as an odds on favor to win that division, which I think is very much too high given the improvements that we have seen from the Atlanta Hawks on paper. And what I think is going to actually transpire out there on the court. Now, the other team that made headlines, and they're not part of the Southeast, but it's one of those big trade, to those one one of those teams that made a big splash in terms of acquisitions, that would be the Cleveland Cavaliers. And of course, Donovan Mitchell comes over for Cleveland. Very intriguing fit with him and Darius Garland, along with one of the best defensive front courts in the NBA. That, of course, would be Evan Mobley, Jared Allen. And you start there with Cleveland. Defensively, Cleveland was, asti- it was astonishing looking at what they were able to do defensively when we're talking about Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. How about some of these numbers? When Jared Allen and Evan Mobley were on the floor together last year, Cavaliers, 105.7 points per 100 possessions allowed, opponents shot 54.4% at the rim, and 87.8 points per 100 plays in half-court settings for their opponents in those possessions. All of those numbers defensively ranked in the 94th percentile or better according to Cleaning the Glass. It is It's wild. It's wild how good those two were defensively when they were out there on the floor together. Elite, like with a capital E on both ends if you want. But what's interesting about those numbers is despite having elite defensive numbers across the board with those two, their net rating was only plus 2.9, which is not that good considering how great those defensive numbers were because their offense really struggled at times. And that's where Mitchell comes in. Mitchell with Darius Garland, who was literally their only creator at times last year, and injuries were part of that, is really going to help that out. Obviously, Mitchell is a dynamic scorer. He is a ball handler. He can facilitate. Him and Darius Garland work very well together in a backcourt, right? So I think that's something where, like Darius Garland, he can play off ball. He can catch and shoot and hit three-point shots. He can facilitate as well. So those are two roles that are really going to work very well together. But my pause here, and this is where I wrote about this in the NBA guide. It was actually one of the – I think it's the cover story, which is all of these splashy moves – when it comes to Atlanta, Cleveland, Minnesota, and Minnesota we'll get to next week when we talk about the Western Conference. While there are a couple of moves, specifically for Atlanta and Minnesota, that make them legitimate regular season, I would say, as dynamos, right? Like really good teams that are going to win a lot of regular season contests. There are not moves among those three that make them championship contenders. And for the Cleveland Cavaliers, I think this move does neither for them in at least when it comes to this season. Donovan Mitchell is still one of the worst defenders in the NBA. And you can get away for we well, can get away with that, right? When it had when you have a Rudy Gobert just playing in drop coverage and cleaning up all of the messes. And while Evan Mobley and Jared Allen are very good in their own right, and Mobley is athletic enough to the point where he can switch on to matchups and become tremendous and handle all of those things. You also have to be able to, and this is a, a line from Kevin Pelton of ESPN that I thought it was tremendous just because Evan Mobley can switch on to guys, you also have to be able to execute the switch on the other end, which means Donovan Mitchell switching off to somebody and Donovan Mitchell switching off to somebody in the front court. And that's a mismatch that a lot of teams are going to go after throughout the regular season. They're going to go after it when it comes to the postseason. And that's just something that I think ultimately holds this Cavaliers team back. On top of which, if you look at their depth, that's kind of gross for the most part when it comes to production. Yes, Ricky Rubio is going to come back at some point, but overall, you don't really like a lot of the production that's going to come off of the bench. Yes, Karis LeVert is here, but Karis LeVert is. That's a fine isolation scorer, but he doesn't really move the needle in terms of giving you inadequate, I think, offensive production coming off of the bench. And they are very small at, wing, at the wing and in an NBA, which is littered with dominant wing scorers. Their best wing player right now, at least from a defensive and just matchup standpoint, basically, is Isaac Okoro, who is a non-factor on defense, shot 35% from three last year, and is a non-factor to the point where teams are regularly switching off of him, helping off of him, and it closes up that floor for that team. And if you want to do Chetty Osman as the other wing player, and the problem there is Chetty Osman is a turnstile defensively. So I think a lot of people, it's weird. I get the sense that in the offseason, people think that Cleveland is the more viable team and that Atlanta is the less viable team when it comes to the regular season. I come into this regular season thinking the opposite. I think Atlanta comes into this year as the more viable option to win a lot of regular season games, to win their division, to make it to a high seed, and we'll see what happens in the postseason, but I don't think they're really constructed for a postseason run. While Cleveland comes in, I think very much overvalued, and people not really realizing that, well, yes, there are a lot of nice pieces here, as we talked about. Donovan Mitchell's weaknesses as a defender – the lack of wing depth and just the lack of scoring depth overall on this bench will ultimately hold this team back. And now when you put that together with a win total of 47 and a half for a team that I think is going to be a play in candidate, it very much, I think spells playing an under there for the Cleveland Cavaliers as a whole. So when you look at the Eastern conference, we kind of talk on, you know, knocked off some of the big boys there when it comes to the contenders and some of these trios that we're talking about, right. Um, when you look at all of the teams that we have discussed up to this point. So let's talk about some of these other teams that are floating in this nexus really quickly, because I think there's a couple of teams that I've been very confused by, and we'll wrap it up with some of the futures bets that I have, at least in the Eastern conference. But really the two, the one that's actually, I shouldn't say a couple, there's one team that is very confusing to me. And that would be the Toronto Raptors because the Toronto Raptors are one of these squads that really just went into the regular season this year. And we're like, now we're running it back. We're good. We have everything that we want. They're, Main acquisitions in the offseason, Otto Porter Jr., Josh Jackson. And that's, I think, when you look at this right now, something that I don't love. Because while there are really high highs statistically and just things that you like narratively for Toronto, right? They're projected starters of Fred Van Vliet, Gary Trent Jr., OG Ananobi, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam. That is a lineup that is going to switch one through five. Yes, even little Fred Van Vliet going to switch. It is extremely long. It is wildly athletic. They are going to be among the best defensive teams in the NBA, and they are going to be uh, among the best transition teams in the NBA, both offensively and defensively. The problem that I have with Toronto, and I'm very much in the minority of this when I take in a lot of NBA content, is, and and this is where I kind of get confused, and to kind of expand on the confusion thing. I wonder if I am looking at a team like Toronto and perceiving what could be weaknesses in the postseason as weaknesses – that won't really be exposed over the course of the regular season. So what I mean by that is my biggest problem with this team is their half-court offense. If you look at the Toronto Raptors over the last few seasons, they have consistently been very poor in half-court settings, and it has held them back. In overall non-garbage time offensive efficiency, Toronto finished 16th last year, 112.9 points per 100 possessions. And what was supposed to be their best lineup, the one that I mentioned just now, only put up 109.6 points per 100 possessions. And if you whittle that down to their half-court offense, it gets even worse. They were 26th in half-court offensive efficiency last season, an offensive rating of 91.3. And their most used lineup, which is, again, the starting lineup that I, that I talked about there, their offensive rating in half-court setting was 94.4. The problem with Toronto is that they lack a true north-south presence when it comes to their backcourt. There is no guy who is going to go out there and attack the rim, get within four feet of the basket, and draw free throws. And if you're going to challenge me on that, and say, yes, they have Fred Van Vliet, or they have uh, guys like uh, Scotty Barnes or O.J. Anobi, the numbers don't dictate that. When you look at what they've done, offensive free throw rate last year, 24th, 17.8 made free throws per 100 possessions, 26th in frequency of attempts at the rim, only 30.2% of their attempts came within four feet of the basket. You need those attempts as a team to get those easy points within four feet to get to the free throw line. And that is ultimately why this team has really struggled. It is a really good defensive team and they are among the tops in the league in terms of forcing turnovers and getting out in transition and scoring in transition. I mean, it plays throughout all their numbers. They force turnovers on 16.9% of their defensive possessions. They added 2.7 points per 100 plays in transition off of steals last year. Those strengths are going to be there, but in those games, they become more half court oriented in those games in which you need to work those offenses in slower-paced settings, where you need to get to the basket, where you need to drive and kick and move the ball around, Toronto has not had that over the last couple of seasons. And while you can tell me they might be healthier this year, they are exactly the same roster that they have been, and those weaknesses are still going to be there. And yes, they went over this win total last year. But remember, the conference is better. Philadelphia in their division is better. Boston is going to be more like the team that ended the season. So the Celtics are better. The Brooklyn Nets are together, for whatever that means, and arguably are going to be better with some better availability. So I think when we put this all together, Toronto becomes this confusing team for me because I very much see a team that I think I want to bet under their win total, and I see a team that, while it has a lot of strengths, has some very clear weaknesses, and I'm not sure what to do with them. So ultimately for the guide, recommended under the win total, it is not a future bet I made but it is very much a team that I am very conflicted on when it comes to what their ceiling is going to be when we get to the regular season. So a couple of teams to rattle through really quickly uh, that I want to get to because uh, there are uh, some really interesting storylines with them. The first of which is the New York Knicks. Uh, I have very much been anti-New York. (laughs) Uh, If anybody has taken in my work, I have been made fun of for my lack of uh, respect for the New York Knickerbockers as a franchise and uh, have very much loved playing against them in certain situations. Uh, And they, of course, made headlines too. Jalen Brunson, the acquisition for them in the offseason. And I actually really like what the New York Knicks bring to the table in this coming season. And for the NBA guide, recommended an overplay on their win total, which you can find the lowest right now at 38.5. Tibbs is in his third year. Brunson really fits in that system. But there's a couple of things you like here. First of which is Isaiah Hartenstein is their backup center. Hartenstein was incredible for the Clippers last season. For those who don't know uh, what he did as a defensive center for the Knicks, or excuse me, for the Clippers last year, to give you some numbers, when he was on the floor, opponents' rim shooting dropped by 6.2%. He blocked 3.3% of shot attempts. Their bench includes Emmanuel quickly. He outscored, or when he was on the floor, Knicks outscored opponents by 6.7 points per 100 possessions. He's a great passer. His assist rate went up by a mile last year. And he has been absolutely tremendous. He's a six-man-of-the-year candidate and a most improved candidate as well. Obi Toppin, statistically across the board, was a massive positive for the New York Knicks last year. I think what you don't like is, one, Evan Fournier is still in the starting lineup. Evan Fournier has really fallen off as a player. And the core of what they have in their starting lineup, which is Evan Fournier, R.J. Barrett, Julius Randle, and Mitchell Robinson, when they were on the floor together last year, they were outscored by 5.3 points per 100 possessions. So the question you ask yourself is, How much does Jalen Brunson really improve that group now that he's going to be on the floor with them? Really, it's not going to be that much. But if you're talking about more of these dynamic lineups that they can play, better backup center play with Hartenstein, when you talk about maybe, maybe, Tibbs actually kind of coming out of his shell a little bit in terms of being stubborn when it comes to playing veterans and allowing some of these younger kids to get more minutes and play some more minutes with some starting lineups and creating some interesting pairings like Jalen Brunson and Quickly on the floor together, Quentin Grimes, who they deemed as a uh, untouchable piece in the Donovan Mitchell conversation. There's a lot to like, I think, about the New York Knicks and wouldn't want to fight anybody on betting them over their win total. And then there's the Chicago Bulls. Uh, The Bulls are very much a team that have a lot of buy signs on the under and a lot of buy signs on a negative season coming into this year. Uh, Chicago, first off, the terrible news that one Lonzo Ball is going to be out for quite a while here had to undergo knee surgery yet again. It continues to bother him. He's going to be reevaluated in four to six weeks. We need to stress reevaluation because we have seen that word before, and guys have missed entire seasons. Joe Harris was one of them. Zion Williamson was one of them, and he has had multiple procedures on this knee. It is not good news for the Chicago Bulls. And on top of that, this was a team that was hanging on just by a thread last year. Their defensive numbers were not sustainable at the beginning part of the season. If you looked at a lot of the projections for them, you could tell that the fall was coming from grace. And sure enough, they went from competing to a one seed uh, for a one seed to floating right around in that playoff mix while eventually finishing sixth. And DeMar DeRozan had a career year across the board. Can you replicate that? Because if you can't, you're talking about a sixth seed that is missing arguably its best defensive player outside of Alex Caruso has a DeMar DeRozan, who has gotten a little bit older, obviously, and is not going to be able to replicate the year that he did. A hole at point guard where Kobe uh, Kobe White or uh, Io DeSunmu are going to play. They're both very negative defenders. Nikola Vucevic is among some of the worst de- defensive centers in the NBA, and Zach Levine has very much been inconsistent with his availability. There are so many signs that point to the Chicago Bulls taking a massive tumble down the standings to the point where at least when it comes to like the top eight, and finishing out and looking at our projections and predictions, I did not have Chicago as a playoff team this year. And yet, when you look at some of the win totals for them, you can find forty-three and a half on their win total. That is very much worth looking at for the Chicago Bulls, who look around, who look very much like one of the worst teams in the Eastern Conference. And then, what I have slugged as my guilty pleasure, we're not going to get out of here without talking about what I think is the um, dark horse in the Eastern Conference. And that would be the Detroit Pistons. And when I say dark horse, as much of a dark horse as you could be uh, when it comes to a lower tier team like this. But they add Kemba Walker, who's going to be you know um, uh, traded off or cut, whatever. He's not really a big addition. But Alec Burks, Nerlens Noel, Bojan Bogdanovic come in as veteran presence. Cade Cunningham is absolutely the real deal. If you look at his numbers after he got healthy, remember he started the year with a little bit of an ankle issue, I think it was. Uh, 15.2 points, 5.9 rebounds, 5.3 assists on 38% shooting from the floor his first 29 games. But... His last 35 games, 19 points, 44% shooting from the floor. He was way better. Improved Detroit's net rating by four points every 100 possessions. He has been he was tremendous near the end of his regular season rookie year. And there are certain buy signs on teams that I look for, and one of them is how you perform a perform post All Star break. One of the teams a season ago that had that buy sign was the Minnesota Timberwolves, and sure enough, what happens? You bet on the Timberwolves as we did. We talked about that at the beginning of last year, 7-1 to make the postseason. They are great. They make it to the postseason. They go over their win total. They were absolutely tremendous. This year, Detroit was that team. While they finished the uh, post-All-Star break the last 24 games, 10-14 and 14 straight up, they were 18-6 and 6 against the spread. At one point, they had covered 10 straight and 14-15 of 15 contests, showing very good fight and maturity when it comes to such a young team. And now they had the perfect veterans around that mix to make this push here For a potential postseason spot. And when I say postseason spot, I'm talking about like competing for the 10th seed in the Eastern Conference with the likes of New York, with the likes of Washington, Charlotte. Those are the teams that they're going to be fighting for that spot with. But I very much think, and this is one of the big movers of the offseason, I bet them over 26 and a half on their win total at Circa. It's up to 29 and a half now. I believe 28 and a half is still playable if you can out there and find it. And it is still available in quite a few spots. But Detroit has all the signs of a team that is very much worth buying on. As you kind of look ahead throughout the Eastern Conference and what they potentially could be, and you know, there's a lot left in the Eastern Conference, right? There's a lot of meat left on this bone overall. In that Central Division alone, for example, uh, you have a team like Indiana who's got a lot of intriguing young talent, a legitimate um, most improved candidate in Tyrese Halliburton, which we'll get to when we get to our awards in a couple of episodes. But he's very much we're looking at in that regard. Uh, and then you know, just the teams and the narratives around them in the Atlantic at the bottom of that division. It's going to be very intriguing uh, to see that when you look at overall. um, uh, No, excuse me, not the Atlantic. I got a little distracted there. I have all my notes all jumbled up. Um, (laughs) The Southeast, the Charlotte Hornets, a team that has made it to the play-in. Each of the last two seasons has gotten blown out in that play-in and decide to sign Steve Clifford to a deal because they were desperate for a head coach And he is a square peg round hole, defensive minded coach who loves his veterans, signed on with a team with a bunch of offensive players who don't play very good defense, who want to get up and down the floor and who are extremely young, not really a fit. And I think very much when you look at some projections for them defensively, a very good candidate to potentially go over their market win total high of 37. Orlando has a ton of young talent. And I think, and this is a great point that was brought up on ESPN by Orlando that I wanted to get out there because I love the talent that Orlando's got. Their front court is among, I think, some of the most talented front courts from a youth perspective. When you're talking about Franz Wagner, Paolo Benquero, Wendell Carter Jr. And they have motivation to win because this is the thing. We saw the other night, we got to see Victor Wembanyama uh, and Scoot Henderson play one another. Actually out here in Las Vegas, it was a tremendous setting for both of them. It was it was absolutely fantastic. We got to see them play. Um, and those are the two guys, specifically Victor W's, we'll call him, uh, the guy who was at the top of, the list for a lot of these teams that want to get to the top of the draft to go and select him. But having said that, Orlando's a team, and this is, again, to, to give credit to, I think it was Zach Lowe ESPN who brought this up, Orlando's a team that you could potentially see yank a bunch of these guys, tank for a top selection, and try to get one of those dudes. However, they just had the top pick in Paolo Bencaro. And remember, they have draft capital from the Chicago Bulls, who we just talked about as a very legitimate team to go under the total who's going to have a really bad bounce back year it does seem and so now all of a sudden that pick is top four protected but you're talking about a team that has their pick that has another first round pick that's top four protected from a Chicago team that projects to be pretty poor and they just selected first overall their guy Paolo Bencaro maybe this is a team that's actually content with where they're at and with where all those assets are and Orlando could very much be a team that is worth looking at over the total considering the young talent that they have now They do have a lot of injury issues, and that's part of the problem. Uh, When you look at the beginning of the year, Jalen Suggs is a little banged up. Um, Gary Harris is a little banged up. Markel Fultz is as well. So you want to make sure that those guys are going to be around. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of talent there. And what about the Washington Wizards, who just spent all offseason acquiring B-level talent and have a starting lineup that's actually kind of okay? Imani Morris, Bradley Beal, Will Barton, Kyle Kuzma, and Kristaps Porzingis. And remember, Bradley Beal was really banged up last year. And if he plays a full season, as much as you know a full season is nowadays over the course of an 82 game schedule, well now all of a sudden, you're talking about a team who market win total, the lowest is 34 and a half, who very much just wants to be in that play in mix, is very much worth looking at when it comes to that regard in the Eastern Conference. So as a whole, some of the win totals and, and big futures that I played in this uh, Eastern Conference, to recap really nicely here, put a bow on under the Miami Heat in terms of their win total. Atlanta to win the Southeast division, you can get that at about plus 170 or so. in Miami, by the way, four, under 49 and a half. you can find the Philadelphia 76ers, the win total I would recommend shopping for, of 50 and a half, and bet them over that win total as well. Uh, very much worth looking at in that regard and under on the Chicago Bulls in terms of their win total, which the highest in the market is uh, 42 or 43 and a half, excuse me, and worth looking under there. But the Eastern Conference is going to be fascinating. And there's a lot of award contenders in here too that we're going to have as part of our awards episode coming up sometime next week. So with that, remember, uh, if you can, like, rate, review, subscribe, all these podcasts. We need those things. So make sure you do that. And a refresher for you that Harvard Handicappers is back. We're going to have these more regularly twice a week to start the year, and then we'll expand as the season expands as well and have a lot of great guests, including regular spots from Kelly Bidlin, who's going to join us on our journey throughout the NBA regular season. So we hope you're going to be with us as Harvard Handicappers and the NBA regular season is back, baby.